0: President Trump and his border wall have been in the news again lately. I don't know about you, but when I start thinking about walls, I think first about Jack Nicholson. You can't handle the truth! Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You! You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. That, of course, is Jack Nicholson playing Marine Colonel Nathan Jessup in the 1992 film A Few Good Men. Do we live in a world of walls? Are they necessary? And do we need men and women like Colonel Jessup on those walls, defending them? We're going to talk about all of it here on the American Culture Podcast. episode two of the American Culture Podcast. I am Earl B., the creator and host of this podcast, and today we're going to talk about walls. I'm so glad you've taken the time to join us. As a candidate and as president, Donald Trump has said repeatedly that if you don't have borders, you don't have a country. President Trump campaigned on the promise of building a wall along our border with Mexico as a means of strengthening enforcement of our immigration laws, and in order to enhance our national security. We're going to talk about President Trump's wall, why it is important, and how the promise to build that wall is much more significant than it might appear to be on the surface. Trump's promise of a wall is intertwined with our American culture and our history as a nation governed by laws, not by men. Trump's wall actually sits on the active fault line of a true, constitutional crisis. The first purpose of a government, if it wants to remain a government, is to, to provide security to its people. For a roaming band of hunters and gatherers in prehistoric Africa, that security could be food security, and the leader of the band would likely be one of the best hunters in the group. I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Naked and Afraid, but uh, In 2017, they had a a Naked and Afraid XL version of the show where they dropped 10 people into the Amazon jungle who were supposed to survive there for 40 days with almost no provisions. Um, A machete, a pot to boil water in, and uh, nothing else. Um, Now, in that group of 10, there was one guy named Matt who was the only guy, the only person in that group of 10 who had significant success during the show as a hunter And he quickly became the alpha male of that series. He was essentially feeding the whole group with his hunting. And if you watch the show, it was actually very interesting and pretty funny how the women in the group looked at him. They literally swooned over him. And the other men in the group, they looked up to him and just wished they could be like Matt. You could really see how, if it had been real life instead of reality TV, that tribe would have made the hunter, Matt, their chief, with no contest at all. Now, physical safety is also a very important part of the governmental security regime. Can the leaders of the group keep the wild animals from attacking us and harming us? If you can't keep neighboring aggressive marauders out of the village and make your people feel at least reasonably secure in their homes, then you're going to fail as a government. If you can't defend the territorial integrity of your home, your village, your city, or your country, if you can't control who is allowed to enter and who is allowed to remain, then can you really call it your home, your city, your country? Governments have been using walls for millennia as a means of providing that physical safety to their people. One of the oldest known civilizations, the ancient Sumerians, who lived between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers over 4,000 years ago, and what we called Mesopotamia when I was in school, they built a wall believed to have been over 100 miles long to keep out the Amorites. The people of Athens in ancient Greece built a series of long walls in around 461 BC to protect the city and its harbors from the Spartans. In around the year 122 A.D., the Roman Emperor Hadrian ordered the construction of a 73-mile-long wall that runs nearly coast-to-coast across northern England, not far from what is still the modern border between England and Scotland. Nearly 2,000 years after after it was built, Hadrian's Wall is still today one of Britain's major ancient tourist attractions and is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Construction on the collection of walls and fortifications known to us as the Great Wall of China began as far back as the 3rd century BC, and were still being updated and improved up until the 1600s. The walls of ancient Babylon date back to around the year 575 BC, and were one of the original ancient wonders of the world. The walls of the ancient city of Troy, in what is now northwestern Turkey, were built in the 13th century BC and are one of the oldest walls that still stand today. The walls were so formidable that Troy was able to withstand 10 years of siege by the Greeks and were only defeated when the Greeks snuck elite troops into Troy using the famous Trojan horse. The city of Lima, Peru built large defensive walls in the 1600s to protect the city from pirates and other enemies of the Spanish crown. And have you been to Europe? My wife and I have had the chance to take two vacations to Europe in recent years. There are seemingly thousands of walled cities in Europe. A partial list of the walled cities that I have personally visited on my very limited travels include Vienna, Austria, Dubrovnik, Split, Paris, Buda, and Pest, Florence, Rome, Krakow, and Bratislava. The point of this very abbreviated list is to show that the idea of building a wall to protect a society, a culture, a way of life that you believe to be worth protecting is as old as civilization itself. These walls span all of human history, from prehistoric times to today, and they are found in Europe, in Asia, Africa, and in both North and South America. In any place and in any time that humans have settled, walls have been used to protect peoples and their cultures from those who sought to harm them. Today, we live in neighborhoods with walls, Gated communities. We live in apartment buildings with guards at the door. We lock the doors of our homes. If you're a Hollywood celebrity or a powerful politician, your home in Malibu or on Martha's Vineyard or in Georgetown is likely surrounded by your own wall, patrolled by armed security guards to keep out people who don't have your best interests at heart. If you have anything which you value, it is very likely that someone out there will want to take it from you what do you want to protect are you prepared to defend it we of course want to protect our property we want to provide physical safety and security to our families and our neighbors we want to protect american jobs perhaps to keep our crime rate rates lower but we also want to protect and preserve our country by keeping outside those who don't share our belief in the specialness of America because more than anything, America is an idea. America is a set of beliefs about the rights and responsibilities of free men and women and about the proper relationship between a people and its government. Historically, our shared beliefs, our core values, were those captured by the nation's founders in documents such as the Declaration of Independence and in the United States Constitution and Bill of Rights. These core ideas have been interpreted and added to over time. We who are blessed to live in this country want to protect and nurture this American idea and pass it on to our children and our grandchildren. If you believe in the unique blend of values and precepts that come together to make up the idea that is America, then you will be welcome here no matter your ethnicity or your geographical origin. We want to invite to America those who buy into our cultural values. But if we instead admit into our country people who don't share those uniquely American ideals, people who have different agendas, then as the number of those who don't buy into our culture increases, we will eventually lose our country. Countries and their cultures are different. They have different traditions and different values. Some cultures believe strongly in the value of work. The work ethic is an important part of American culture. It has been described here as a very Protestant value, and it has been woven into the fabric of our nation since its inception. For those that believe in it, the idea of being lazy, of living a life of dependency on handouts, whether from one's neighbors or from the government, is horrifying. The idea of not supporting yourself and earning your keep through hard work is shameful. People with this American work ethic take great personal pride in supporting themselves. But not all cultures share this same belief in the work ethic. In many countries, holding a job and working for a living is for suckers. The smart play in many countries, is to wait for the government to provide you with food, shelter, and spending money. Or the smart play is to get a government job just so you can get rich through bribery and corruption, not because you're actually going to work. One of the biggest internal challenges we face as a nation today is that we have increasing numbers of Americans who have become completely dependent on government welfare who have given up the idea of ever supporting themselves. They consider themselves victims of one sort or another and are utterly convinced that the system owes them an apartment, an an iPhone, central air conditioning, cable television, high-speed internet, a car, fashionable clothes, free healthcare, and more, without any obligation on their part to lift a finger to support themselves or to better themselves. The very last thing we need to do is import from around the globe more people with that very same victim mindset and the same preference for welfare over work. Now, in addition to work ethic, a short list of American values would also include tolerance. Tolerance for free speech. Tolerance for those of different religions. Tolerance for those of different ethnicities. Another value on this short list would be equality, especially equality for women. Respect for women and the rights and dignity of women as being legally and socially the equal of any man, if not their betters. Is it really smart for us to admit admit into America large numbers of migrants from countries that don't have a culture of tolerance should we really be welcoming groups of people who culturally treat women as second-class citizens? As a Christian, and as a man with a mother, and a wife, and a daughter, I don't think so. The President of the United States has, as his most important duty under the Constitution, the responsibility to see that the laws of the United States are faithfully executed. But under President Obama, rather than the faithful execution of the laws, we had a president who liked to pick and choose which laws he wanted to enforce and when. Which laws he wanted to ignore and when. We had a president who flouted the constitutional limits on his authority through numerous illegal executive actions. And we were forced to stand by, horrified, as the Congress and the courts and the mainstream media let him get away with it. Some examples of Obama's failures include his several unilateral, unconstitutional executive actions regarding the so-called dreamers. This whole problem we're facing today between President Trump and the Congress was caused by President Obama's unconstitutional action to basically delete from the books, our immigration laws. Other unconstitutional actions by Obama included his, ultimately, his non enforcement of federal immigration laws, his IRS's targeting of conservative groups seeking tax exempt status, his numerous violations of clear law in implementing Obamacare, his non enforcement of federal drug laws on the states that claim to have, quote unquote, legalized marijuana, his unequal enforcement of the rights of freedom of speech, perhaps most notably on college campuses. Compare, if you will, the tolerance and the laxity of enforcement taken by authorities against the so-called Occupy movements or other protests or riots by leftist groups. Compare that to the difficulty that conservative student groups have hosting mainstream conservative speakers on college campuses, just for a simple speech. Not for a parade or a demonstration, just for a simple speech. The most significant and the most basic reason why Trump's wall is absolutely necessary is to begin to restore the rule of law in this country, starting with restoration of respect for our immigration laws. Coming to America illegally, by ignoring and flouting our laws, does not bode well for instilling respect for the rule of law. If a person is willing to break or ignore our laws to migrate here, and then they're willing to break or ignore our employment laws by working as an illegal immigrant, and ignore our laws by driving vehicles without a license, and possibly, thanks to the motor voter laws, illegally voting in our elections, at what point is that person? going to magically become a good citizen who respects the rule of law. It's a horrible way to start. It's bad for us as a nation to send the message that it's okay to ignore some laws that are inconvenient for us or that we don't like. It's a horrible way to start out as a new resident in this country by essentially breaking in like a burglar in the middle of the night. It also sets an awful example for the law-abiding citizens who already live here to see groups of people who are treated differently under the law or who see their government ignoring important laws that were put into place by the will of the people through their representatives in Congress. Wouldn't you much rather accept as an immigrant to our country the person who follows the correct legal process and comes here after filling out all the paperwork and waiting their turn? Of course you would. Doesn't it make much more sense to admit into our country, people who have already demonstrated, by using the legal immigration process, that they have a healthy respect for our laws? Of course it does. But Trump's wall is, of course, about more than just immigration. The wall is about our elected president keeping faith with his voters. The wall is at least as much metaphorical as it is literal. Decades of broken promises from the Republicans in Congress and even Republican presidents have destroyed the trust between rank-and-file Republicans and the elected leaders of the GOP in Washington, D.C. Therefore, the wall is also a surrogate, a symbol of representing the restoration of the rule of law generally, which has been deteriorating for a long time, but which has been utterly lost over the previous eight years. In the run-up to the 2016 election, I strongly felt that the most important issue in the election was the restoration of the rule of law. And I saw, and I still see, the immigration issue and Trump's wall as just a proxy for this larger problem. The concept of the rule of law in America holds that the supreme authority in our society are the laws duly enacted by our elected representatives, not any individual person or group of people. All citizens are subject to the law, no person or ruler is above the law, and all persons are to be treated equally before it. It is said that in other systems of government, the king is the law, but here in America, the law is king. It seems almost trite to us now, as it has become so familiar to us, but it was a very significant profession of civic faith to include in the U.S. Constitution the phrase that the Constitution and the laws made under it shall be the supreme law of the land. That phrase in our Constitution enshrines the idea that we are a nation of laws, not of men. And it is why it is a significant threat to our nation when any person, whether a president, or a judge, or a citizen, takes it upon themselves to decide that duly enacted laws should not be obeyed, and decides that they will rewrite the law to suit their own preferences. Such actions place a president or a judge above the law, and makes him or her, in some respect, a king. If the president or a federal judge in Hawaii thinks that a law is outdated or unfair, then they can urge the Congress to change the law. But until Congress has so acted, the laws must be enforced. In fact, enforcement of the law could very well be the best means of seeing a bad law changed. There is a quote often attributed to Abraham Lincoln, which more likely belongs to Ulysses S. Grant, that says, The best way to get a bad law repealed is to enforce it strictly. Now, opponents of the wall make various arguments against it. They say, It won't work. To which I say, If it won't actually work, then why are you so worked up about it? If they truly believed a wall would be ineffective, They would not be uh, objecting so loudly, of course. They'll say it isn't necessary. It's overkill. We can control the border through other means. We can have more men, sensors, blimps, drones. And this is true to a certain extent. We could control the border through these other means if the president and the Congress were truly committed to doing so. But these other means have been tried half-heartedly and been shown to be worthless without the budgets and the commitment to doing the job right. And because these other methods have been proven useless, we need the wall, which will work even if the Congress and future presidents lack the political will to enforce the law. Opponents will also say that the wall's a big waste of money, to which I say, if the wall works, and I think it will, then it isn't a waste of money, it might be expensive, but it's not a waste. But more importantly, how can the Democrats argue against anything based on cost? The Democrats have never seen a wasteful pork barrel project they didn't love. Here in California, the state is building a so-called high speed train to nowhere that nobody wants that will never deliver on its promises. And that is going to cost billions and billions more dollars than the gullible people of California were promised. Yet the project proceeds. How much so-called stimulus money was wasted on so-called green energy projects during Obama's administration? Did any of them actually produce any clean energy? The only thing that stimulus money actually produced was more political donations for Democrats. Opponents of Donald Trump's wall will often invoke the poem at the base of the Statue of Liberty to support their agenda of open borders. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The proponents of unregulated unregulated immigration tend to focus on the huddled masses. But I think we have to consider carefully the meaning of the phrase, yearning to breathe free. The key word there, I think, is free. It is not a yearning for anarchy or lawlessness. It is a yearning to join America and to experience what it means to be free here, to become part of our nation and our unique culture of ordered liberty. We welcome those who wish to be free, as freedom is practiced here in America. This welcome is not extended to those yearning to set up islands of isolation within our borders, or to resist our culture, or to undermine and plot against their new country. I also think it is vital to note that just beyond Lady Liberty's torch, practically sitting in her shadow, sits Ellis Island. The immigrants that sailed to America under Lady Liberty's gaze were immediately delivered to Ellis Island, where they presented themselves at our border and requested permission to enter. Their applications were reviewed. They were inspected and given a medical examination. They were interviewed by immigration officials. They were vetted, and some were churned back. According to Wikipedia, and I'm paraphrasing quite a bit here, Ellis Island was the gateway for over 12 million immigrants to the U.S. as the United States' busiest immigration inspection station for over 60 years from 1892 until 1954. Today, over 100 million Americans between a third and 40% of the population of the United States, can trace their ancestry to immigrants who arrived in America at Ellis Island. New arrivals there were asked 29 questions, including name, occupation, and the amount of money they carried. It was important to the American government that the new arrivals could support themselves and have money to get started. Those with visible health problems or diseases were sent home, or held in the island's hospital facilities. Some unskilled workers were rejected because they were considered likely to become a public charge. About 2% were denied admission to the U.S. and sent back to their countries of origin for reasons such as having a chronic contagious disease, a criminal background, or insanity. And so I wonder, would those people who point to the Statue of Liberty who remind us of the huddled masses yearning to breathe free, would those people be satisfied to implement the same vetting process for admission that was used at Ellis Island? Or would they find even that much screening to be objectionable? The United States currently admits just about 1 million new immigrants into the country through our legal immigration processes each year just a little over a million people each year welcomed through our legal process. Now, maybe that number is too high or too low. Maybe the mix of countries these new Americans come from should be adjusted. I don't know. But I'm perfectly willing to discuss and debate those questions and let the Congress and the President come up with the right numbers and mixes. The question I ask is, what are the motives of those who oppose a controlled and regulated immigration process? How can you be against that? Why would you advocate for a system where citizens of other countries with unknown motives get to decide the future of our country? Why do you advocate for lawlessness? Why are you unwilling to defend America's borders and therefore unwilling to defend America? I think that Many so-called progressives do not believe that the idea of America is special. Barack Obama said as much while president. They think, or at least they will announce in polite company or on their Facebook pages, that there is no difference between America and Guatemala or El Salvador or Mexico. And it follows that if you believe America is no different than any other country, and that it is certainly no more special than any other country, that there would be absolutely no reason to defend it, no reason to fight to preserve it. Do you remember all the celebrities who publicly threatened or promised that they would be leaving the United States because Donald Trump won the election? Do you remember where they said they were going to go? In preparing for this episode, I did some quick research and confirmed what I was pretty sure I remembered. The most popular destination was Canada. By far. Now, I love Canada. I love Canadians. But is there a foreign country that is more similar to the United States than Canada? Isn't that a weird coincidence? All those countries out there. All of them every bit as good as America. All of them supposedly just as special as America. Yet the celebrities most often picked the least foreign country that they could find. Some did pick Spain or Italy or New Zealand. Australia was popular. But do you know what countries all those celebrities didn't choose as their refuge? They didn't choose Guatemala or El Salvador or Venezuela or Syria or Libya or Haiti or Somalia. Those on the left often criticize America's social programs. They like to say, why can't we be more like... Where? Where do they want us to be more like? Which Latin American country should we hope to emulate to make America a better place? Almost all of them are a mess. Tin pot dictators, rampant corruption, horrible economies. Yet the left advocates an uncontrolled flow of the culture from these failing countries into the United United States. That's right. Those on the left don't actually want to be more like Those countries. No, they always say we should be more like Sweden or Norway, England or France. So tell me, those of you on the left, will we become more like these socialist European utopias if we admit hundreds of thousands of people from failing third world countries? Or would we have a chance of being more like Norway, if that's your goal, if we admitted more immigrants from... Countries like Norway. You no doubt remember the recent controversy when President Trump suggested that rather than accepting increasing numbers of immigrants from impoverished third world nations, and he used a much cruder phrase than that, that we should instead take more people from Norway? He was called a bigot and a racist. Of course he was. But was that really any more racist than the elitist leftists in this country? who always point to Scandinavia as their model of true progressivism. Now cynics on the right frequently suggest that the Democrats' advocacy of uncontrolled immigration from the poorest countries around the world is really just an attempt by them to increase the number of Democrat voters on the rolls so as to assure the Democrats a governing majority for decades to come. Because poor Uneducated, unskilled immigrants are more likely to end up on government welfare. And the Democrats are quite confident that welfare recipients are their natural constituency. One would hope that the Democrats aren't really that craven to sacrifice America's unique cultural legacy for their own political power. One would hope. And so here we are, We're in a situation where an elected president is being pilloried by the Democrats and their accomplices in the media for merely trying to do his constitutional job of seeing that the laws of the land are faithfully executed. We're in a situation where a former president is celebrated for placing himself above the law and not enforcing the duly enacted laws. And we have the Democrat minority in Congress willing to shut down the entire federal government unless the president will break his oath of office and not enforce our immigration laws. We are truly in the middle of a constitutional crisis. This is why President Trump's wall is so important. It isn't just about bricks and mortar. It's not just a physical barrier to be used as a tool to help strengthen our southern border. That wall is about our elected government leaders keeping faith with the American people. It is about reestablishing our commitment to the rule of law, and it is about renewing our historical commitment to live as a nation that is governed by laws, not by men. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed this episode of the American culture podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our show, we are on the web at American culture podcast.com. All one word, no spaces. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash American culture podcast. Again, no spaces and on Twitter at twitter.com slash am culture pod. A M C U L T U R E P O D. If you could give us a like or a follow or a retreat, retweet, retweet or a share on Facebook or Twitter, that would be awesome. And I should mention that I post interesting news items to the American Culture Podcast Facebook page almost daily. So if you like the show and share our interest in American culture, be sure to follow us there. Ours is a new podcast and you can really make a difference and help us grow our audience by subscribing to the American Culture Podcast on the Apple Podcast app, formerly known as iTunes, or on Stitcher, Google Play, or on whatever platform you found us. If you really want to be a superhero, you could go the extra mile and write us a five-star review. I would be very grateful. All content of the American Culture Podcast is copyright by Earl B. and AmericanCulturePodcast.com. The views and opinions of the host and any guests as expressed on the podcast are solely those of the speakers and not of any other person or organization. Thanks for sharing this time with me today. Let's meet back here again real soon.